0: You know the, the writers of the New Testament sometimes talk, talk about the other church and they say, you know, I've heard about this, or I've heard about that. People know and love Kensington Temple all around the world, so thank you for being faithful, saying focus on God's mission. I appreciate you so much, appreciate you both, Pastor, you Kathy as well. Just so appreciate you both. God bless you, and thanks for having me here today. All right, so let's um, let's take out our Bibles and. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and following. Of course, you know, I love the theme we're talking about as a church being rooted in Christ, growing through Christ, fruitful for Christ. Last time I was here, I had the privilege of preaching on what it meant to be growing through Christ as well. Uh, last week here, uh, we, we talked about um, standing firm, and we're talking right now walking through these ideas of keys to freedom, because of course many of us are in. So we're going through that course together. Now, here's the thing. Um, how do we have a Christ-like view of people in the world, because I think ultimately that's going to be one of the keys to freedom, committing and connecting fully to Christ, which is one of those keys that you heard Pastor Mark talk about. Well, I want to talk about that today, about how we can get a new perspective, a new view of people in the world that help us to walk in freedom, right? Walking in commitment and connection to Christ. Because right now, a lot of people are divided uh, the culture is conflicted, turbulent, and tumultuous. People are mad, some people are mad at the people that are mad, but, uh, but we're not the only Christians to live in tumultuous and turbulent times and difficult times. Matter of fact, if you go back 2,000 years ago, Paul's writing, Paul the Apostle, is writing here in the book of 2 Corinthians to a church at a place called Corinth. The church has actually become conflicted, in some ways corrupt, wrapped up in a lot of things that weren't glorifying the Lord, they weren't God-honoring. So Paul had to write to them to rebuke them at least twice that we know of. In the second rebuke, he's encouraging them to see people, see one another, see the world differently, and to represent Jesus and his kingdom well. And that's what I want to talk about today. A Christ-like view of people in the world comes from getting a new perspective, committing and connecting fully to Christ. If you're a note taker, i gonna look at this through four points. You can jot these things down if you like. You'll also be able to see them and follow along on the screen together. Number one on our outline is we get a new perspective. We get a new perspective. Now I'm gonna read through the passage in portions, but we'll cover the whole passage of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. So hopefully hope you got your Bible out and you're following along with me. If you don't have one, uh, look on with a friend. It says this, right? In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 and 17, we get a new perspective. It says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Now, isn't it easy to regard people from a worldly point of view? Maybe from the family you grew up in, the culture from which you came, the nation of origin. Wherever you came from, we can regard other people through the lens of the world. Whatever the lens we've inherited, whatever the lens we've learned, So now on, we don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view, so something has changed. It says, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore. Now, the therefore is a connecting passage. Whenever you're reading through the Bible and you see a therefore, you want to ask, what's it there for? What's it doing? And it's connecting those two passages together. Right? So we don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Even if we knew Christ from a worldly point of view, now we see him differently. How and why is connected by the therefore. Therefore leads to one of our favorite verses in the Bible. You've been in church for a while. You might even have this verse memorized. It says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. So we see here a couple of key things, right? Verse 17 talks about our new life in Christ. I have it memorized in a little different translation. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, old things have passed away, new things have come. So there's a new life, but just before we get to the new life that's connected with the therefore, we had a new way of looking, a new way of looking at the world, if you will, new lenses through which we see the world. Now this might be a challenge for us is to see people and the world the way Jesus would want us to. So it tells us we no longer see people from a worldly point of view. Now, worldly is not just one way, because depending upon what part of the world, what your family and culture of origin is, you can see people differently. But now something has happened. As followers of Jesus, we have a new life. We have received by grace and through faith the good news of the gospel that new life is clearly connected to a new way of looking at people in the world a new life is connected to a new way of looking at people and the world a new set of lenses through which we see the world no longer from a worldly point of view are you following with me all right good so so we see this passage and it tells us we've got this new life a new way of looking a new set of lenses through which we see the world if anyone's in christ there's new creation And it's a new birth. So if you're here today, you're watching online, you're here in the sanctuary, you're in the overflow, we're so glad that you're here. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here. But we want you to understand that coming to church is not about trying harder, becoming religious, trying to be a better person. It's not about turning over a new leaf. It's about receiving new life. It's receiving new life in Christ. We do that by confessing and repenting of our sin, trusting and following Jesus, and Jesus calls it being born again. It's a spiritual birth. So a new birth is not a new leaf. It's a new life. It's a new creation personally, but also a new creation corporately together. You've heard that theme this week. You heard that theme last week. We're in this together. So a recreation of self Now, in a new gospel community, and it's a hint of the new heavens and the new earth that are to come. So the kingdom of God has broken into the world in Christ. You're a citizen of that kingdom. Kensington Temple is an embassy of that kingdom. We're born again into that new life and that new community. The old is gone, the old nature, the old order, both really. So then the question is, how do you look differently at people and the world because of our new life in Christ? Because the reality is, the ways of the world are shaping how we see one another. Could have been your family of origin, could have been the culture which you were raised, or it could be the social media that you use. If you don't think social media is a means of discipleship, you're not seeing just how divisive social media has become. People are being discipled by their social media. They're being spiritually shaped by their electronic interactions. Yet the Bible calls us, Paul writes to us, reminds us we've got a new life a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. A new set of lenses through which we see the world. You may have noticed I've touched my glasses now a few times. You've probably noticed that I'm wearing glasses. Now, how many of you are wearing glasses? Just raise your hands, it's all right, it's all right. Four eyes. <laughs> did you get called that as a kid? I did, I did. It was very bothersome to me. Um, I remember, I remember when my mother came home uh, we came home from the eye doctor, and she told me that, uh, here's what she said, she said, Eddie, she called me Eddie, and you may not, uh, she said, Eddie, that's uh, what she really called me when I was a little kid, she said, Eddie, um, she was, like, we just came home, I lived outside of New York City, came home, and she said, Eddie, you're going to get to wear glasses. Now, even the language she used, I knew something was up, you're going to, not that you have to wear glasses, but you get to wear glasses. Like, it's a privilege and an opportunity to have some corrective lenses on your face all the time. So I said, Mom, no. I don't want to wear glasses. I said, Mom, people, the kids will make fun of me. And she said, Eddie, they won't make fun of you. just trying to encourage me. And that may be the first time in my life that I realized that my mother didn't always tell me the truth. <laughs> Because they actually did make some fun of me, but there's more to the story. Because she said, she said, well, Eddie, actually, you're not just going to wear glasses, but because you have something called a lazy eye, you're going to have to wear an eye patch. And I said, Mom, they're going to be merciless. These kids are going to make fun of me. She said, Eddie, no, they're not. They're going to think you're a pirate. <laughs> I said, Mom, they didn't think I was a pirate. Uh, so, so for me, that was, I mean, that was a little bit embarrassing. To be four eyes, right? And so it wasn't that long ago when... My daughter, I'm the father of three daughters. Donna and I have three daughters together. Last time I was here, Donna was with me. She couldn't come with me this time. But we have have an 18-year-old, a 21-year-old, and a 24-year-old daughter. So that's both a statement of our situation and a desperate request for intercessory prayer. (laughs) So, Lord help us. Uh, But what a blessing, right? So I love my daughters, they're awesome. But the youngest one, her name's Caitlin. And Caitlin, when she was about the age I was when I got classes, Donna came home with Caitlin, brought me into the kitchen, put her hand on my arm and kind of looked at me seriously and she said, now listen Ed, Caitlin's gonna have to wear glasses. I don't want you to make a big deal about this. You need to keep it cool. I'm like, me? Overreact to things? Why would you think such a thing? Because we've met. So um, so, so I got into dad mode. I don't know if you have dad mode in every culture and every context. but. Dad mode's a unique thing, and so I got into dad mode, and so I, I came to Caitlin, and I, and I said, Caitlin, I sat her down. I said, listen, um, I hear you're going to get to wear glasses. And just as I said that I heard the words of my mother flowing through my mouth, and I realized just how similar we are from generation to generation. I said, Caitlin, you're going to get to wear glasses, and she said to me, she sort of knew, sort of apologize, you can see a little cough drop there, but don't, because we just get that out of the way, because I'm going to cough sometime during the message, and it's going to be awkward unless I tell you ahead of time, and now we've named it, it's not awkward anymore, is it? <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so there it is, it's done. <laughs> Hopefully the only time. So anyway, so so, so, Kate. I said, Caitlin, so you're going to get to wear glasses, and she says to me, Dad, I mean, just like that, now she's a middle schooler at the time, what is that, like sixth grade, seventh grade, so... She's not allowed to roll her eyes at her parents, but somehow she verbally rolled her eyes at me in that statement. She said, Dad. I said, Dad. She said, Dad, glasses are cool today. I said, no. She said, yeah, yeah, yeah. People will go to the store. I have friends. You're not here. You know about this. You know about this. They go to the store and buy glasses without prescriptions You know about this. This is stunning to me. It happens here. So they buy glasses of prescription so they can wear cool glasses. And I was so excited for her, yet still simultaneously bitter for my own childhood experience. You see, I don't wear glasses for fashion like my daughter's friends do. I wear glasses for seeing. It's a crazy thing, but if I don't have glasses, um, I can't see you anymore. You're not here. I'm talking to an empty room of blurry people. So when I put on my glasses, I put on my glasses to see. So I put them on. Welcome to Kensington Temple. I take them off. We'll see you later. So I can put it back on, right? So I wear glasses to see. And what happens is, over time, is that um, when I talk, you've already seen me adjust my glasses. When I talk, my my head moves, my, my glasses move, and I have to I have to adjust them back into place. And People have noticed that and, and told me that. So let me let me let me share a story with you. So I was the uh, the interim pastor of a church in Chicago for four years. Nobody be sure the interim of anything for four years. Um, but I was the interim of this church in Chicago called the Moody Church. It's kind of I guess it's kind of like a Kensington Temple in Chicago. It's this historic downtown Chicago church, um, and. Um, and we, too, had challenges, by the way, because when you have an historic church, it requires work to bless the house. And so we, too, had some challenges that were there. But, we, uh, so, but it's also a historic church, and people have been going to church there for decades upon decades. And they would go to school at a Bible institute right near there called Moody Bible Institute. They'd go to that church. And so when I was preaching to a room like this, I was also preaching to a camera, and thousands of people were watching every week. And, you know, I was not, I mean, you know, it's a more traditional church, and, and you know, maybe I, ch- I made a few changes, I moved the pulpit, I put a little TV monitor so we could look at the Bible verses, and sometimes people weren't happy with that, so occasionally we got a complaint letter. Um, but my favorite complaint letter ever, I actually saved for you today. <laughs> so here's what happened. So I get this letter, and uh, well, they sent it to the church address, and they forward it to me. And so I loved it so much, I took my phone, right? And I, I just took it, and I literally just, just like you would, I just took a screenshot of it. And uh, this is the unedited screenshot of that complaint letter. Let's take a look, it's right here. It said, Dear Pastor, at the beginning I took that part out, and it closed with something nice at the end. But it says this, I wanna read it to you, right? This is, it's a little blurry because it's exactly the screenshot. It says, I listened to your August 13th sermon at Moody Church Online. After listening to it once, I listened again. Praise God, a double listener. This could go well. Because I was awestruck. Praise God, must love the preaching. I was awestruck with the number of times you adjusted your glasses while preaching. (laughs) It's an actual letter, right? So the second time I listened, I saw in the first 36 minutes of your sermon... Some of you are a little struck by the fact that there's a first 36 minutes of a sermon. Like how long does that sermon actually go? About 45 minutes at that church. I saw you, 36 minutes of your sermon, you adjusted your glasses 74 times. You can hear the passion in his his voice as he writes, then you took them off so I did count no further. (laughs) Then he gets a calculator, it appears. This was an average of once, every 30 seconds but then he says keep in mind this was an incomplete count you can hear the passion because some of the time scripture or your sermon was on the screen and i could not see you (laughs) can you feel his passion i tell you this in christian love all all letters all complaint letters even the meanest ones generally say i tell you this in christian love but this is not this actually person meant well Because I know you're interested in being aware of anything that may distract listeners from hearing what you are preaching and teaching. You can hear his passion. So I hope you will accept this knowing I want your ministry for Christ to be as effective as possible. But here's the thing. I don't wear glasses for fashion. I wear them for seeing, and when I talk, I move my head around, my glasses move, and when my glasses move down my nose, they're out of the proper focal length. I'm now out of focus. So I can even have my glasses, but I can't see you. I have to adjust them to get to the proper focal length. That's how glasses work. Now here we live in 2023. We've got cultural convulsions all around us, turbulence and tumult all around us. The church and the culture has been shaken. We see it in our culture with the cost of living crisis, the fuel crisis. We see it with political crisis after political crisis. We hear division and we hear brokenness. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have felt the cultural tension even directed towards you. We have been knocked about and knocked around in our culture. And those lenses through which we're supposed to see can get knocked out of focus. And if anything else you take away from today, let's take a moment to readjust those gospel lenses to see rightly people in the world around us. So... So I get a new life. I got a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which I see the world. And it re- requires us to have those eyes with those gospel lenses. I love Pastor Mark talked about prayer walking last week. If you were not here last week, you can listen to the, to the whole service online. Talk about prayer walking. I love that you walking around. Right? Talk about Steve walking around, looking and praying with spirit-filled eyes. See, that's what we have. We have this new life, this new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. Whenever we can take those gospel lenses and rightly apply them, Gary Chapman's going to be here soon. Gary Chapman's my friend. He went to Wheaton College where I teach, right? So, so, so Gary, he went there long before I went there. So just so you know, long before I went there. But he's going to give you a new set of lenses to see relationships. It's more. Every time we can take a scriptural view in the power of the Holy Spirit, we see people and the world better. So number one in our outline, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. So a Christ-like view of people in the world comes from getting a new perspective, committing and connecting fully to Christ. So we come to number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, we're going to hear the word reconcile in one form or the other four times. There's a pattern here, it's what's called a parallelism. You can actually see it when I read it. It's gonna almost sound like I reread the same line. Let's look at it. It says this in verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, we've been reconciled, given the ministry of reconciliation. It goes on. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting their trespasses against them, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So here it is, we've got this reconciliation. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been reconciled to God through Christ, and now you've been given this ministry of reconciliation. Now you're walking into this with a new life, a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. So how do we have a Christ-like view, committing and connecting fully to Christ, in the times when so many are tossed to and fro in our culture and even lose sight of the mission? of the church well we tie it back to the scriptures now all this is from God it says right there all this is from God so we look back up to verse 16 and 17 that's from God verse 14 we're compelled by love that's from God all the way back to chapter end of chapter four that's all part of what comes before but then it says we're reconciled the parallelism you could see it we're reconciled reconciled us to himself gave us the ministry of reconciliation reconciling the world to himself gave us the message of reconciliation you see, there's a, there's a great commission highway that goes back 2,000 years, right? Somebody told you about Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, somebody told you about Jesus. Somebody invited you to trust and follow Jesus and thank God for that person. You know what, though? Somebody told that person. And somebody told that person who told that person who told that person all the way back 2,000 years ago till Jesus told a group of disciples, go therefore make disciples of all nations. And they told somebody and they told somebody and that person one day told you. And I want you not to miss that because you have been reconciled and then given the ministry of reconciliation. You have been reconciled then given the message of reconciliation. You say, Ed, but I'm not an extrovert. And I get that, right? We have different people, different. Some are extroverts, some are introverts, some are a mix of those. But at the end of the day, all of us have been reconciled and given this message and ministry of reconciliation. So what is our role in that? we got a new life, a new way of looking, a new set of lenses. Those lenses help us to see people in the world in need of reconciliation. So we go into the world showing and sharing the love of Jesus, part of who we are as followers of Jesus. It was a few years ago when uh, Donna's, Donna's my wife, um, 35 years plus we've been married. And um, so we're at the age and the length of marriage where we actually don't use words to communicate with one another. It's almost telepathic, the way we communicate with one another. So, um, you know, that's not in the love languages, but it could be in Gary Chapman's book as well. So one day uh, we were going on a trip and um, the, called the Uber driver... And the Uber driver came to pick us up, and we got into the Uber driver's car. Her name was Jane. She told us, it was actually on the app as well, so I knew. Jane said, Hi, Ed, and asked Donna what her name was. She said, Donna, we got in the car together. And Jane was a super friendly Uber driver. Not all of the Uber drivers are super friendly. Uh, but you know, I mean, you, you do get rated as an Uber driver, you know, and they, they rate you as an Uber passenger. So right now my rating is 4.9, and it's really bothering me who didn't rate me a five. Because I rate everybody a five. So anyway, so Jane, super friendly, going to get a five. She gets in, she says, Ed and Donna, you know, if you need any chargers, I got chargers in the back of the seat, bottles of water in the back of the seat. And there's a little basket in the middle, she says, and if you want to take anything from the basket, it's all there for you. So I looked down in the basket. Donna and I looked down in the basket, and there was some mints, a candy, and an obviously strategically placed New Testament of the Bible. So I looked to Donna didn't need to say any words, had a bit of a mischievous face, and I said, let's have a little fun with this and run with this for a while. She saw my mischievous face, she knew what I was saying, she looked back and she said, okay, but don't you take this too far, I know you, Ed Stetzer. And I looked back and said, I won't, without any words, we began. So Jane started talking to us, taking us to O'Hare Airport, Heathrow of our city, and so Jane would say, so where are you guys from? And I from New York and Donna's from Canada. And she'd ask, you guys have any kids? We said, we told about our three amazing daughters. And, and um, I wouldn't like lie, but I wanted to avoid topics that might uh, derail our conversation as she was leading us through a spiritual conversation. So she said, well, what brought you to town? Well, I couldn't tell her that I'd lead the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College and I teach evangelism, right? I couldn't say that. So I said, well, I'm a teacher. Factually true. So I said, well, Jane, what about you? What, do you do something else other than driving Uber? Is that your, Is that your full-time job? She said, no, sometimes I, I sell some real estate. I said, great. This went on for 15 minutes with Jane just adeptly leading us in a conversation where she finally got to the place where she said, well, Ed and Donna, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Do you have any religious upbringing or background? And at this point, Donna looked at me without speaking and said, you have to tell her now. <laughs> So I did. So I leaned forward and said, Jane, actually, yes, we're Christians. And and Jane, I actually, I teach evangelism at Wheaton College. And I just want you to know, you are doing so great at it right now. A plus for you on your paper. And we laughed. And um, I actually wrote it up. I asked Jane, I said, Jane, can I interview you right now? I turned on the recorder my phone. And if you're interested, you can actually find this interview. It got picked up all over the place. If you just Google Jane the Uber driver, that's her real name. She really loves Jesus. She became a family friend. She's the first person in Chicago that sought to share the gospel with us. But I asked her why. And she talked about how Jesus has changed her. So how could she not try to tell other people about how Jesus has changed her? And it reminded me of this verse where someone's been reconciled to become an agent of reconciliation. Someone's been reconciled to have the ministry and the message of reconciliation. Because Jane was on a Great Commission Highway too, that went back 2,000 years. Somebody told somebody, told somebody, who told Jane, who tried to tell us. And thank God that somebody who is reconciled took up the message of reconciliation. Now... She took us to the airport where we flew down to Florida, actually. And the next morning, the world got the news that Billy Graham died. And Billy Graham's a Wheaton College graduate. I, I hold the chair, the Wheaton College, uh, Billy Graham chair at Wheaton College named after him. I, I, I uh, teach topics and take people through the museum in his honor. Um, so he died. And fast forward a little over a week later, we gathered at the funeral at Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, the world stopped. I mean, it was, uh, it was on the BBC, it was on television networks, people were talking about it around the world. Perhaps in a way, um, maybe the, one of the last great religious leaders that will actually be honored in that way, and there it was, people around the world watching. And so we went to the funeral, and afterwards, reporters came up to us, and uh, it was a appropriate time, appropriate place, so all these reporters in their tents, and there was live broadcast on, on live television across the United States, other places around the world. And um, a reporter from the New York Times came up to me and said, Dr. Stetzer, um, ask the normal questions. You know, what do you think people will remember about Billy Graham? What was his greatest legacy? And then uh, uh, her her name, Lori's her name, Lori said, "Um, so who's the next Billy Graham? And I was ready for the question because nobody in the family calls themselves or wants to be known as the next Billy Graham. In fact, nobody in the world really, because Billy Graham is such a unique man used of God. I bet some of you have stories about how you intersected or interacted with a Billy Graham crusade and, or your parents did and it changed their lives or your life. And so she asked, Laurie asked, so who's the next Billy Graham? And so I was just ready and I just said quickly, who's the next Billy Graham? Her name's Jane the Uber driver. <laughs> and she looked at me with a strange look on her face and I told her the story. And, uh, and she said, she said hey, we're friends, she said, Ed, That's a great story, but it's not making the New York Times. I said, that's okay. Because that's not what Jane was doing it for. But you see, Billy Graham was just a messenger, he would say. He told somebody who told somebody told him who somebody told Mordecai Ham told him, somebody told Mordecai Ham going back to the telling of the disciples to go make disciples of all nations. Billy Graham was on a Great Commission Highway and other people have taken it up. Jane was on that Great Commission Highway and other people are taking it up. And what I want to say to you, as we're thinking of a Christ like view of people and the world, right, getting a new perspective, is don't let your life be a cul de sac on God's Great Commission Highway. And it can easily become so. You say, but Ed, I'm not good with talking to strangers. Then talk to people you know. Show and share the love of Jesus to people in your neighborhood, your community, your family, and more. Last week, we talked about standing firm. This week, I want to encourage you to step out, right? Part of it is having a new view. You've got a new life, a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. But now we see from this passage, we're sent on a mission of reconciliation. So a Christ-like view of people in the world comes from getting a new perspective, committing and connecting fully to Christ, and don't let your life be a cul-de-sac on the Great Commission Highway. And also, too, if I can just do one brief exhortation, too, we need Kensington Temple together on mission as well. So I really appreciate you saying, "Bless this house." I want to bless this house. I mean, you. I mean, I. You know, I rec- recognize. I bet you recognize just how strategic this place is. Now, the church is the people. But the people have a place. So we need Kensington Temple together on mission. So bless this house. And then we need you on mission together, showing and sharing the love of Jesus in this community, in London, and around the world. Yes. Amen. Number one, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Number three, representing Jesus and his kingdom. Representing Jesus and his kingdom. Remember, a Christ-like view of people and the world comes from getting a new perspective, committing and connecting fully to Christ. Let's look at verse 20. It says this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Now, if you have a Bible there, you have a Bible open and you're comfortable, I would circle the word ambassador in your Bible right there. It's an important word. In fact, it's only used twice in our English Bible. Once here, once in Ephesians. Here, Paul's talking about himself. He's actually defending his apostleship. He's talking about himself and the group of missionaries that he's with that we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, however, Christians for 2,000 years have seen the word ambassador appropriately applies to them. We're ambassadors for Christ. The church, like Kensington Temple, is an embassy. We don't use the word embassy as much in London for a church. But for those of you from parts of Africa, you're familiar with the word embassy being attached to a church because it's an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It's a representation of the kingdom of God. And so we're therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. We, you, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is the great marching order. Right, The kingdom has come into the world. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I don't know if you've heard lately, because there's little, little sowing these ideas of the kingdom has broken into the world. The freedom that comes in the kingdom. Well, the kingdom arrived when Jesus the king showed up The kingdom has come because Jesus the king has come. It doesn't fully come until Jesus comes back. So we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But between the first and second coming of King Jesus, we're ambassadors. Now, I wish it was always easy to be an ambassador. Last time I was here, Mark, you walked Donna and I around and you showed us the, kind of the row where some of these ambassadorial homes and the embassies are. And it looks like a pretty good life to be an ambassador living here in Notting Hill and looking, you know, these beautiful homes and I, I grew up outside of New York City and we would see ambassadors, and they would drive these cars with flags on them and they could park anywhere they want and they wouldn't get parking tickets. What a world that would be, wouldn't it? You just park your car in the middle of the street and couldn't get a ticket, that's the way it was. Now that's pretty great life, but 2,000 years ago, the life of an ambassador wasn't just a life of privilege, though it was always a life of purpose. An ambassador represented a place, a person, that was not where they were but where they perhaps wanted to be and so as citizens of the kingdom of god it's not always easy it's always a privilege right it's always a blessing it's always part of our purpose but sometimes it's hard and the other place where the new testament uses the word ambassador is in ephesians 6 where paul writes i'm an ambassador in chains not always so easy now Recently we had a graduation, so, you know, I I use examples from school because I'm a professor and a dean. I'm at Wheaton College now, but changing to, uh, as you mentioned, the Talbot School of Theology in uh, July, Uh, moving from Chicago, where it's cold all the time, to California, where it's not. So that'll be fun. Um, But recently at our graduation at Wheaton College, we had a couple of our graduates speak. Their their names are Andrew and Noreen Brunson. The name might not immediately come to mind for you, but as I tell the story, you probably have seen them on the news. Say, why well, that'd be kind of obscure. Why would I see them on the news? Uh, a few years ago, uh, the government of Turkey imprisoned Pastor Andrew Brunson. They arrested them both, and then imprisoned Pastor Andrew Brunson uh, unjustly for two years. And their hope was to sort of trade him, the government of Turkey wanted to trade him for someone they wanted in the US And so they actually put him up on uh, trumped-up charges. He was just a pastor there, uh, put him on trumped-up charges, put him in prison, convicted him of being a terrorist and more. Matter of fact, when we introduced him, he was released, as the story I'll tell you in just a minute. When we introduced him at the Wheaton College graduation, our president said, this is the first time we've had a convicted terrorist speak at our graduation. But it was trumped-up charges, made up, everybody knew it. People were calling for his release around the world. Prime Minister here, here as well. All around the world, people are calling for his release. And so he got and he shared before our students. They're all graduating 21 years old, fresh out to engage the world around them. And he told them that representing Jesus isn't always such an easy thing. He talked about his mission work there in serving in Turkey, how he was seeking to be faithful for the gospel. They planted a church which he pastored. And he talked about the challenges of that, a church that maybe grew to 20, 30 people, and that was a large church in Turkey. Then he told the story about when they came and they arrested him. And for two years, he was in a cell designed for a handful of people with dozens of people who hated him, hated his religion, hated what he stood for. And in that place, he talked about how there was more than one occasion when he broke, when he had nothing left. He wasn't at an easy place to say, I'm just here to tell people about Jesus. He had nothing left, but he came back again and again to the Lord, to his grace, to represent Jesus in that prison cell. And then the news broke all around the world that he was released. And a plane took him from Turkey to a base in the, in Europe, continental Europe, and then he came back to the U.S. and he went right to the Oval Office of the President. And all the cameras around the world were there. This was major news and all the cameras were there. And he just asked at one point, can I just kneel down right here, pray, give thanks to God and pray for the world? And the news cameras couldn't click away. It was too quick. He got on his knees and he prayed a powerful gospel prayer. See, here's the deal. You don't know as an ambassador whether you're going to be in a prison and you're going to be in a time of struggle and the Lord's going to give you strength to make it through, but you're going to represent Jesus well you don't know if the next day you're going to be in the oval office but you're going to represent Jesus well but here's what you do know when you know you got a new life a new way of looking a new set of lenses through which you see people and the world you're ready to say yes to Jesus when you recognize you've been you've been reconciled and sent on a mission of reconciliation you're ready to say yes to Jesus and when that opportunity comes you represent Jesus and his kingdom well Number four, and finally, and we got to close with this. I'm already a little long. You know what it means when an American says, let me close with this? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) But let's try. Number four, and finally, because of the cross. If you're reading through the passage and you didn't read this last verse after the verses that precede it, you might find this last verse to be a bit of a turn in the text. Number four is because of the cross. Here's what it says in verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot of pronouns in that. Let's go through it. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus. So God made Jesus to be sin for us. He was not a sinner, but he was made sin for us. So the sins I committed have been imputed or deposited in Christ. He was made sin for us so that, I love that word, those words, so that, In him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So my sin was imputed or deposited in Christ on the cross when he died on the cross for my sin and in my place. And because I have received by grace and through faith the good news of that gospel, his righteousness has now been deposited or imputed to me. So when God looks at me, he doesn't see all the sin and the stupid things I've done. He sees Jesus' righteousness. And where I come from, that would lead to an amen. Amen? Amen. 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 So, so now, what a beautiful passage, but what does it have to do with the rest? Because everything before is, is, you know, we get this new perspective. We see people in the world differently. We're sent on a mission of reconciliation. We're representing Jesus. And then there's this incredible theological verse about the doctrine of the imputation. There's a word. Let's try to work that word into a conversation this week. Matter of fact, why don't you say it out loud with me? Are you ready? Imputation. Come on, everyone together imputation Imputation. because I believe if you can learn to order coffee at Starbucks you can learn theological words at church (laughs) so imputation has been imputed to us the one who knew no sin died a sinner's death and in doing so he's our substitution he has taken our place and if you're not a follower of Jesus you have not yet received the forgiveness that comes from him taking your sin on the cross as your substitute. He was made sin, not a sinner, but sin for us. Sin was imputed to him just as righteousness was imputed to us. God treated Jesus if he committed every sin so that believers could be seen by God as having lived Jesus' perfect life. But what does that have to do with the rest? And I think it speaks to the motivation. Let me give an example that may help. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up outside of New York City. I grew up in a uh, more of an urban context. And my family had a lot of struggles. And we had to start over. We moved to Florida in the United States. And um, we lived in a, not a great area. My grandfather had had a home. And he said to my dad and my mom, you can, you can live there. But it was in bad shape. right? It, uh, someone needed to bless that house. Um, but it was in bad shape. And one day, all the plumbing backed up at the same time. I don't know a lot about plumbing, but that can't be good. So my father, I could hear my father calling my grandfather, yelling at him on the phone. There was a lot of choice words shared. Um, so my grandfather called back in about 10 minutes, and he said, Eddie, I want you to meet me outside. We're going to dig up something in the yard. Well, that sounded pretty exciting to me. I'm 10, 11, 12 years old. I don't remember how old I was. But my grandfather was a very wily fellow, kind of uh, I thought maybe, you know, Ponce de Leon had been through Florida. Maybe he had a map, and we were going to dig up treasure in my backyard. And, oh, it was treasure, I assure you. So my grandfather comes up. He's got a shovel. I had a long little metal rod that we had. And we met in the backyard. And this one part of the backyard was particularly green and lush and a little little bit of a mound in the backyard. You know where we're going with this, don't you, brother? Stay with me. Because I had no idea. Because I'm a city boy. I didn't grow up where what I'm about to tell you would happen. So my grandfather says, we're going to dig right here. And I get super excited. I start digging. And we strike a box. There is a concrete box buried in my yard. And I'm 11 years old, and you did not see a happier 11-year-old boy. I have discovered treasure in my yard. So I start digging it up, digging it up, and we find it. And it's, a, it's got a lid to the box. And this is the most amazing thing ever. So it's not that deep in the ground. The water table in Florida is kind of shallow. So there we are. And my grandfather says, all right, we cleared it off. Now we're going to open it. I'm like, you bet we're going to open it. This is amazing. So I take the little metal rod. There's a little notch on the top lid. And I lift up the lid to something that's called a septic tank. (laughs) And I lift that lid up and sweet mother of pearl... There's a box of poop in my yard. <laughs> now imagine you're my age and have no concept of why. I mean, what is what is going on here? What is in my yard? And my grandfather laughed and said, "Listen, it's your family." And I'm like, "I don't care if it's the Queen of England. There's a box of poop in my yard." I have no concept of what a septic tank is or what a septic field is. I never played in that lush green area again after I learned what it was. But he says to me, Eddie, we got to unclog it, and I'm like, we? So I get to the edge of the septic tank, and I get this metal rod, and my job is to take that metal rod to find the pipe that goes in, get in there, and unclog my family situations. And I can't really get it to work, so I'm trying. And so my grandfather says, listen, Eddie, I'll hold your shirt so you can lean over a little more. (laughs) This is a true story. This isn't a preacher story. This really happened. So my grandfather takes my shirt and holds me over the septic tank. And he decides to be funny. And he says, don't fall in, Eddie, and shakes me. And I lose my footing and I fall in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm up to my knees in my family. And it was the most disgusting moment of my entire life. You see, God designed you to want to get away from that. And here I am standing up to my knees in what's the most disgusting reality. Now, you can feel it viscerally, can't you? Even as I say it, some of you are like, oh. Some of you you are like, I don't think you should have shared that example at church, I know. Send a letter, I'll screenshot it, share it at the next (laughs) church. It's all fine. It's all fine. So, so, So here's the thing I want you to miss, though. You're not supposed to be near that stuff. And I want you to think for just a second of this passage, because the all holy, all perfect God of all the universe created a world that was good and right. And then the sin came and ruined everything. And he knows what the stench of our sin looks like. He knows the sin, the death, the grave, the hell. He knows what those are. This is not you're not unaware. But on the cross, Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I don't want you to miss this, right? So when this not Jesus died for our sin. God made him our sin. So your sin and mine, the stench and filth, the very thing that a holy God despises, the stench of the filth, he became for us. That's the power of the imputation in 2 Corinthians 5.21. But the thing I don't want you to miss is how that ties to the rest. That's the motivation for the rest. So we get a new perspective. That perspective is deeply based on what Jesus has done on the cross for our sin and in our place. So we got a new life that was paid for with his death. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you today to receive by grace and through faith the good news of that gospel so you can have that new life. With that new life comes a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. And then to live in this world, sent on a mission of reconciliation, representing Jesus and his kingdom, but doing so because of the cross.